Welcome to IntelliCast, powered by Skip. Welcome to another episode of Skip IntelliCast, a podcast about strategy, intelligence, and leadership. I'm Cam Mackey with Skip, and today we'll be talking with Matt DeVost. Matt is CEO and co-founder of UDA LLC. He's a technologist, entrepreneur, and international security expert specializing in counterterrorism, critical infrastructure protection, intelligence, risk management, and cybersecurity issues. Matt co-founded the cybersecurity consultancy FusionX and was previously president and CEO of the Terrorism Research Center. Welcome, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, really appreciate it. Now, Let's maybe jump in for those in our audience who are not familiar um, with with UDA, you know, the concept of UDA and the decision support loop. Um, you named your firm after it. So maybe uh, uh, maybe talk a little bit about what UDA is and uh, why you decided to name your firm after it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's got a great backstory. Uh, UDA as a concept stands for observe, orient, decide, and act. And it's a decision cycle that was articulated by an Air Force pilot named John Boyd. Uh, interesting backstory with him and that he was a fighter pilot to fought in the Korean war and then was, you know, a dogfight trainer and uh, was undefeated. In fact, not only was he undefeated, he was famous for being able to start at a position of disadvantage and convert that to a position of advantage within 40 seconds. Uh, So you get the nickname 42nd Boyd. Uh, As you can imagine, that attracted all sorts of attention from the Department of Defense, and they brought him back to Washington, D.C. and made him sit in an office in the Pentagon. And uh, he came up with, you know, what he believed was the, the concept that allowed him to be so successful was that he went through this decision loop, observe, orient, decide, act. It's actually much more complicated than that. I would encourage people to go out and, and read the papers, you know, read, there's a great biography uh, written on him uh, just called John Boyd and um, basically determined that he could do that faster than his adversaries. And that was what gave him the advantage. So when we started the firm, we thought it was a great homage. I had been in the Pentagon 25 years ago, part of a group called Disciples of Boyd, looking at the application of the OODA loop into other contexts. There's been uh, other great folks like Chet Richards, one of the first you know people to interact with Boyd on the OODA concept, uh, who has applied it to business in general. And we felt like it was a great framework for establishing a consulting company, because at the end of the day, we wanted to be able to help our customers make more intelligent decisions. Uh, So that was kind of the the origins of it. We did get blessings from the family uh, before we did it. And even though I owned the domain, I wanted to be comfortable that they were okay with us using kind of his heritage in that capacity. uh, And they definitely gave their blessings. That's great. And it's, uh, I got to believe they appreciated the the reference and the homage to him. It's uh, that's a, that's a great story. Now, in terms of maybe, you know, talk briefly, if, if you don't mind, Matt, about, about your firm and, and some of the things that, that you do. Yeah, we are, uh, you know, a boutique consultancy, and I think that's just a fancy way of saying we're not too big, uh, comprised of uh, really senior leader experienced folks that come out of the private sector and the government. And we provide services on a kind of a, a variety of ranges. Some we do direct consulting. So we do still work with large Fortune 500 clients on addressing hard problems. Those can be cybersecurity problems. It can be geopolitical technology transformation. Uh, so that keeps us engaged with 
the threat environment that exists out there, what our clients are dealing with, and you know the solutions environment as well. Uh, and then we do some work on the advisory side. So we do work with companies ranging from small startups to multi-billion dollar corporations on uh, growth and strategy, uh, how to grow the company, how to adapt in the market, how to adapt their products, um, how to create products for the market. And as part of that, we do uh, some M&A support as well. So we'll work on due diligence for deals and also some buy-side advisory where there are companies that know that they need a capability in a particular space, but don't know who is in that space, uh, what would be a good fit, and we'll help them with that process. And then uh, the last piece is we also run an expert network at oodaloop.com, which we provide some expert content and analysis, but then also run a network of practitioners and executives to share ideas. We have an encrypted private chat room that we use, and then we have a monthly member meeting where we talk about a wide variety of global risks and opportunities, and it's a Chatham House rules way for them to, to get together, interact, and share information. Sounds great. So yeah, I mean, it's uh, you say boutique and small, but you know, it sounds like you got a lot of uh, a lot of things on your plate, which, which is impressive. Um, so Matt, maybe I want to start by asking a little bit more about cybersecurity. Now, um, you know, you've obviously you know throughout your career played a pretty important role in different aspects of cyber. Um, you know, we see at Skip, we work with a lot of corporations. A lot of companies do have a CISO or a Chief Information Security Officer, and they're they're usually in in IT. Now, what are your thoughts about that being a really effective countermeasure? Given that you know so many cyber threats do wind up being you know behavioral or internal, you know, are, are companies organizing to defend themselves uh, from from cyber incursions in the in the best way? Yeah, some companies do better than others, right? And what we need to recognize is that for a lot of companies, this is a blended threat. Um, you have pure cyber attacks, but then you have cyber attacks that are intended to have physical consequence, and then you have physical elements of a cyber attack. If you're in the critical infrastructure space, obviously there are physical consequences to your attack that that manifest themselves through cyber attacks. And the Colonial Pipeline is a great example of that. It ransomware. Uh, in the billing systems that resulted in then them shutting down the physical infrastructure and not being able to, to use that pipeline to transport resources to the East Coast. So you need to make sure that with cyber risk, you know, one of my key talking points in dealing with executives and board of directors is that it is a risk that you need to manage like other risks in the business. A lot of time we want to view it as kind of magic or different, but it really isn't. And the concepts of risk management uh, that you would apply to other aspects of your business apply here as well. Uh, and typically in risk management, you want to have a multifaceted dynamic view of the problem. You don't want to have an isolated or narrow view. Yeah. So you also want to make sure that that all of the stakeholders, you know, the CISO is a great role for spearheading the technology risk in the organization, but you need to make sure that that position is elevated enough to articulate the impact to other areas of the business, but that also that the stakeholders in the business on the operation side have an ability to uh, get the CISO to understand the business operations aspect. Because you, there are trade-offs that you make. There are things that you're trying to do that enable the business. And you need to make sure that you have kind of one common message, one common risk management strategy. And that's, yeah, and I like what you're saying there about it really being, I mean, it's a risk, right? The sky's not falling. There, there, you know, there's no silver bullet. As you said, there's no magic around it. But, you know, like, yeah. like any risk, it needs to be managed. And I think, you know, the, the thing that a lot of organizations are struggling with, with cyber is that there are so many, 
entry point, so many weaknesses within their organizations, right? You know, it can be, uh, you know, I got a manufacturing background and you can have that HVAC system in the plant that, that you know, is that, is that, that point of entry. Um, and, and so you're really seeing this at the board level. If you've seen, you know, do you see generally in your clients that this is something that the boards are allocating proper resources and attention to? They are. They're, they're definitely allocating, you know, appropriate attention in those instances where there's, you know, the a great risk. I think they're, they're giving the appropriate resources to it in most organizations. The only point that I you know, am free, you know, increasingly frustrated at at the board level is the lack of expertise at the board. Uh, I get brought in by board of directors who say, oh, we want you to come you know, interact with us because we feel like we've been taken technologically hostage by our CISO because we don't understand what they're saying. Uh, and the point that I always like to make is it's time now to actually have experts like me represented on the board itself. There is not an organization out there that doesn't face some sort of cyber risk. It's a key component. They should be having experts on the board, you know, as an independent board uh, member that has that risk and and can help the business manage to it uh, because there is at times a translation issue. And there is also, you know, you have to, you mentioned the attack surface is so big. You have to start looking at the, the representative risk at based on the actual impact of the business what would be catastrophic or consequential for the business? And let's manage to those risks first. Uh, in a lot of organizations, we see they want to take this kind of unified approach. We had an assessment. The assessment found 70 issues that we need to address, and it's going to take us five years to address those 70 issues. But if you sit down and you say, well, what is actually critical to your operations? What is actually, you know, are the systems here that are consequential, you know, to the organization or would be catastrophic or they were, if they were attacked? Let's figure out a strategy for how to defend those first. Uh, and then let's also focus on measures from a cyber defense perspective that are actually meaningful. Uh, and I was guilty of this as well. If you'd seen me brief 20 years ago, I would have walked into a board of directors and said, hey, we did an assessment and we found 50 high level vulnerabilities and we found 75 medium and we found 100 low. And then six months later, you walk in and say, okay, we only found 45 high level vulnerabilities. And you view that as an improvement. And it is it is an improvement in that you are you know, mitigating vulnerabilities, but it isn't an improvement because I might still be living with the same exact risk as I was previously. Uh, and folks were measuring the wrong thing. So, you know, as my career developed, and especially as we we're doing stuff at Fusion X, I would walk into the board and say, here is the threat actors that you need to be most concerned with because they target your industry uh, or they are you know, motivated, whether it be politically or financially, to target you. Here is the TTP, the, the tactics, techniques, and procedures that those threat actors deploy. Uh, here, I came in with my red team and we used those TTP and here's the attack surface that we found. And then here's how we leverage that attack surface to move within the business and achieve an objective. So we would operationalize the attack. I could tell the bank, we stole millions of dollars from your bank. I could tell the company, we stole your intellectual property uh, or we simulated the theft of your customer data with a PII breach. And then tell them, uh, here is how, how noisy we got until your team detected us. So we were able to be on the network for six weeks and at this level of threshold. Um, and then we would go back in and we'd say, okay, you've, you've eliminated that high risk attack surface. 
so we had to innovate. Here's how we innovated. But more importantly, here's how much more quickly your team detected us. Here's how much more difficult it was for us to move laterally. And if you can focus an organization on metrics like time to detection and efficiency of response, you can greatly diminish the impact that a real attacker can have against your organization. Yeah. No, and I, I think that's a that's a great point. And and like anything, you know, it's it's a risk that is managed and and you know, a lot of companies, let's be honest, are, are really sophisticated at managing some risks, you know, whether it's the insurable risks like property casualty. I mean, there, there is a pretty decent market out there now for cyber insurance. Um, you picked up, uh, I want to pick up on something you said a moment ago, Matt, about, about, you know, talking to the board and saying, here's some of the likely actors. Now, this whole concept of cyber threat intelligence. So, so as I think about, you know, the average corporation, you have a competitive intelligence person, for example, they are awesome at, you know, looking for weak signals out in the marketplace for, for uh, triangulating, um, even making predictions based on, you know, tons of external data. So, that seems like a skill set really suited towards cyber threat intelligence. On the other hand, you have your typical risk manager, which um, you know they're they're great at what they do, but a lot of companies are insurance buyers. So, you know, maybe talk through the concept of cyber threat intelligence. Who does it in organizations? What are some of the best practices or weaknesses that you see? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan also of having intelligence-driven security organizations, right? So that you are actually managing your risk based on a realistic threat variable, right? When we think about just the classic uh, measures, you know, way to think about risk when you think about uh, threat, you know, vulnerability impact as being kind of the three primary components. If you're not engaging in threat intelligence, you're really operating blindly with regards to that threat variable. So threat intelligence helps to inform that in a variety of manners. And, and from a cybersecurity perspective, it gets it gets a little bit complex right? because you have uh, geopolitical, right, which obviously influences what threat actors are doing or what they're going to target. Uh, some of that geopolitical changes on a dynamic basis day to day based on uh, what has that country's attention. Some of it doesn't change. If you're in the defense industrial base uh, or in the aerospace industry or advanced pharmaceuticals, you can assume from a threat modeling perspective that you've got nation state adversaries that are going to be targeting your organization on a consistent basis. Then you have the kind of the, the, the non-geopolitical, the kind of the criminal element mm-hmm. Uh, that you need to manage to as well. And the collection on that is a little bit different. Here's where, you know, information sharing and analysis centers and the ability to to share intel between organizations with the, the government as an intermediary to a certain extent becomes valuable because my view typically in that domain is only what's impactful to, to me or what I've seen. And I want to have a much broader view. The, the cyber criminal targeting my competitor yesterday might be targeting me today. It might be targeting somebody else tomorrow. So you want to develop that kind of broader industry sector view. And then also understand how those threat actors are communicating. I mean, in the cyber crime space, uh, they are in the business of making money. And that means that there are markets and ecosystems that exist that you can you know, develop a human type approach uh, and to penetrate and observe to get those indicators. Is there a threat actor who is trying to buy information about access in our network? Is there somebody that is offering it for sale that would be indicative of the fact that we might already be compromised? Uh, there's that type of collection that you can do as well. And then there's kind of the machine speed threat intelligence, which you know, for most organizations is, is fully automated. That is the new vulnerabilities that are 
are being released, uh, the new exploits that are in the wild, the new signatures for the detection of that, where you want to be able to ingest that and protect your network. Maybe it's a, a new command and control, the IP address that you want to block any connections in your organization from going against or an MD5 hash for an application that is a new variant of malware. So there is a kind of an automated machine speed threat intelligence component as well in order to be able to keep up with the pace of that technical data that's coming in. Yeah. And that, that first off, wow, it's a, it's a little overwhelming, right? I mean, as, as you say, this is a, pretty much any kind of company is, is um, vulnerable to these types of attacks. And, you know, there's a lot of great research out there that, it's some shockingly high number of, um, you know, it's like boring mom and pop industrials in the Midwest, like 80% have had a, you know, some incursion in the last year. So it's, you know, by no means just you know, the Lockheed Martins or the Bank of America's of the world. Sure. Now, if you could generalize, Matt, do you find that there is, is the motive for these types of acts typically economic? In other words, like like stealing IP and then selling it in the black market, as you mentioned, or with nation states, is is that you know sometimes economic, but sometimes it's just they want the IP to uh, to help industries in their own country. Yeah, when you're talking about nation states, there again, you know, I keep to hate to keep adding complexity to it, but there's you know a couple different variables here. There's one in that it's kind of the the preparation of the battlefield for potential cyber conflict. So adversaries will engage in penetration primarily against critical infrastructure. Uh, let's say, for example, a power grid, not because they have the current intent to target that power grid, but because they can en envision a future three, five, 10 years in the future where they might want that capability, where they might want to use it as a deterrent or to distract us from a regional security issue. Uh, and in order to have that capability, you have to be attacking and penetrating now. So there's that aspect of it. Uh, then there's the traditional espionage, right? They want to collect information on individuals and programs and policies, et cetera. Uh, and so they will target organiza organizations with the intent of uh, engaging in what we would consider to be espionage. And it's the, uh, when Willie Sutton was act, asked, you know, why do you rob banks? It's because it's where the money is. Well, now today, money is uh, now in cyberspace and so yeah. are our lives. Uh, yeah. If you just think about the social media platforms and the dearth of you know information that is available about each of us, um, it, it's massive. You know when I when I present to groups, I have a little triangle slide that I put up that says you know here in I think I think the year is 2015, three breaches that I received breach disclosure notices on, uh, and you know contain almost the totality of information about me. One was the OPM breach, which you know allowed for the compromise of all my personal data and relatives and social security numbers and places that I've lived and, you know, all that fun stuff. The second was a healthcare provider breach, which gave access to doctor's appointments and health conditions and medications. And the third was a major credit bureau that had all of my financial data. Right? So if you just think about it from an espionage perspective, yeah, you can you paint need. a pretty incredible picture of Matt DeVoe um, just in the breaches that occurred that impacted me in 2015. So of course the traditional espionage actors have moved into that space around intellectual property. Uh, yeah. You know, there's an espionage aspect to that, obviously, you know, for, for years we've had examples where we've engaged in espionage to understand advanced technologies, particularly defense technologies uh, and adversaries have as well. But then you also have uh, different cultures that have different 
concepts of intellectual property where they believe that, you know, just because what we've created, you know, if you use the United States as an example, a bulk of our innovation has occurred over the past hundred years. You could look at it from the perspective of an Asian country that says, well, we've had innovation for thousands of years and intellectual property protections didn't exist. And the world benefited from the innovation that, you know, we were able to bring out into the world. So why should our society not benefit from the innovation in your country uh, based on the fact that IP protections exist? So we're just going to kind of violate those and and steal that innovation so that we can deploy it in our own markets. Uh, And then at the, the crime level, it really does get down to the economics and the financial. I mean, the criminals are in the business of stealing money. Uh, It could be that they're engaging in attacks that allow them to steal money directly. Uh, We see these business process uh, attacks or business email attacks where they get in, understand who you are, how you wire money. Uh, we, We see social engineering attacks where they call up and convince you to pay your invoice for a service provider to a different bank account. We've seen where they hack banking credentials directly uh, and steal the money or engage in fraud against your customers. And we also will see what they will uh, breach accounts and then sell that data that they have on the private market. But at the end of the day, primarily uh, financially motivated, you know, at the cyber criminal space. Yeah, that's um, it's pretty alarming, the number of tools at their disposal. Um, so you know, bringing it back to the perspective of of you know, folks who would, you know, would not be a CISO, but, you know, again, our audience is primarily market competitive intelligence and strategy folks. Yep. So, you know, th- these matter are not the fo- the people who are going to be monitoring servers or, or you know, they're not, they're, they're tech savvy, but they are not going to be CISOs. Um, are, th- are there any activities that they should watch out for um, that a competitor could conduct offensive cyber activities that might actually be legal or ethical or is, or is that not a thing you know obviously hacking and stealing ip is is illegal at least here in the us but are there any kind of softer cyber uh offenses that a competitor might conduct that ci people should be aware of we see that right i mean one is the kind of tried and true insider recruitment you know where they try and yeah. get an insider to to leave the organization to see a tremendous amount of that the other is just mining the the open source data that is available and being able to use that to deduct patterns or develop profiles around executives or you know determine intent in a particular market that is one thing i've talked to clients about for you know uh for a long while now, I think I did the first ever uh, open source intelligence briefing for the FBI back you know, in the, in the mid 1990s uh, and the capabilities have just evolved since then. Um, I would be looking at social media profiles for executives. I would be looking at the uh, emergence of new relationships. I mean, you can determine quite a bit about potential uh, M&A activity by just watching relationships between respective companies. Uh, If all of a sudden they start to have more connectivity, uh, if they start to have check-ins at restaurants and, you know, the the city where the headquarters is located for the company you think they might be acquiring, uh, there's all sorts of data that is leaking out every day that's 100% ethical to look at. But a lot of times these executives are surprised with regards to the picture that you can paint from a competitive perspective based on, you know, this information that's, that's leaking out in the public domain or not even leaking out as being deliberately uh, posted or these transactions are being deliberately maintained. If you think about LinkedIn connectivity and other social media network connectivity. Yeah. 
So I, I, I like that because because you know you're you're we're, we've gone from talking about an intentional breach into a network to you know maybe maybe there's an Excel sheet that you left unprotected you know shame on you but it's out there in, in, yeah. in public but then you're talking here Matt about someone essentially just detecting patterns where wow there are a lot of folks from you know Co- Coca Cola Coca Cola executives who were recently friending on LinkedIn. Um, whatever, you know, Pepsi or pick, pick your brand. Um, so yeah, what from a, from an awareness or maybe even a coaching perspective, what can companies start to think about doing so that if they do want to, you know, be smarter from a counter Intel perspective, what are some of the things they should watch out for? Yeah. I always recommend a couple of things. One is, you know, do that assessment of the key executives to see what information is out there and what their habits are uh, and expand it to include maybe, you know, members of the immediate family. Um, That's a, from the perspective, you know, it's kind of twofold. One is that, you know, the kind of the competitive intelligence just being gathered from open data, you're going to get a good sense of what's out there uh, and what their kind of general, you know, privacy hygiene looks like. But also this helps you in helping prevent more targeted attacks that are illegal intrusions where the executives might be targeted through, you know, a phrase I coined multiple years ago, spear friending, where they establish a relationship over social media with an executive or a member of the executive's family. Uh, I've done that, you know, multiple times over the years or create a fake LinkedIn profile or a fake Facebook profile and, you know, the executive connects to it directly or you get a family member to connect to it. And then once you're friends, you start able to see, you know, the photos of where they go and where they have houses. And there's a physical risk protection element there too, where I've worked with a lot of high net worth families uh, and very successful individuals who are under kind of persistent threat of, of physical attack. And that uh, cyber privacy audit helps you to understand the attack surface there. I'd be surprised, you know, working with a family years ago that was under high threat of physical attack where a member of the family had posted all sorts of information that included the residences that the family had, uh, resources like license plates on automobiles, uh, names of, of, um, waterborne ships, you know, where you could go and, and look up. Uh, and then the, the key was they posted a photo of a wedding invitation that showed the exact location that the entirety of the family would be brought together, you know, A, at the, at the, the religious facility and then at the reception location itself. Uh, and just not understanding the impact that that leakage can have. Um, the second aspect of that is I always recommend uh, just an education and awareness campaign that is targeted towards those executives, but is done at a more intimate level. Uh, And you see this even in government as well, right? Where I get brought in to brief at an an intelligence agency that has people in cyber that are much smarter than I am. Uh, And when I say, well, why don't you just have your own people brief? They say, well, A, you know, they want to hear from the outside person, but then we're doing this executive session and the executives want to be able to ask you questions that they're too embarrassed to ask their own staff, right? So setting up these kind of safe training environments where they can ask questions, you can do direct observation. I mean, we've done training where we've had the, you know, the executive and the wife and the kids, and we've picked up their mobile phones and they've, you know, we've walked them through setting more advanced privacy settings or setting their Facebook profiles to be more private, uh, getting them to understand the risk, uh, simple tools that they can buy off Amazon, you know, to charge mobile phones through accessible USB ports and 
airplanes and, and hotels, et cetera, um, that prevent the data connectivity, right? So somebody can't uh, hijack into their phone because they plugged into an untrusted port. Just simple things like that that tend to stick, uh, particularly when you can, you know, the person who's providing the training can provide these, these stories around, you know, real world impact and things that have happened. I, I like that because, because as you say, if you say to, to the executives, here are the 50 critical problems, the 100 medium ones and the 2000 <laughs> small ones, it's just, it's so overwhelming, you know, that sure. you kind of get paralyzed by it. And so I like what you've, you've you know said there, Matt, about, you know, here are specific recommendations, some of which are just going to buy this plug on Amazon. It's uh that, that, you know, the baby stepping probably gets you a lot further. Um, I'm amazed how many of those I've sold, you know, it's just a little $3 device that, uh, you know, you plug your USB charger cord into, and uh, then you plug that into the USB port and it just disconnects the data connection. You know, it lets the power trickle through, but it disconnects the data. Very simple and cheap countermeasure yeah. that you can attach to your cable and forget about. Um that people just don't know exist. They don't understand that the risk exists and they don't understand that the mitigation costs them $3 on Amazon. And you should buy stock in the company if you've- uh, if I, you've should have, I should have, I yeah. yeah. <laughs> should have. <laughs> so, so maybe one last question. So if, if, if you're that head of market or competitive intelligence listening to this conversation, you think, you know, I, you know look, I, I know kind of the basics about cyber. It's, you know, don't log into random networks and don't, you know, don't click on that phishing email. Um, you know, what are a couple concrete steps that a CI professional should take to help their company on whether it's cyber threat intelligence or just more broadly cybersecurity? Yeah, you know, I'd point them, we have a guide on uh, OODA loop that, that we've compiled based on what we call different thresholds of the threat environment um, that it includes a bunch of different factors. And if they just search for, you know, cybersecurity executive guide uh, on OODA loop, uh, there, there are common steps there. And we kind of take it from, hey, I just want to be, you know, more robust in my personal privacy profile to I'm operating in, you know, what could be considered to be a competitive or dynamic threat environment uh, and then escalating to I'm an executive traveling to a hostile country (laughs) and expect to be directly targeted. Uh, So you can look at that and kind of determine what, what steps you want to adopt, but there are, are simple things that can be done, you know, with regards to just making sure that your devices are up to date, that you're using two factor authentication. And I can't tell you, the number of breaches that I've worked over the years, um, particularly of executives or high net worth individuals, where it could have been easily mitigated through, you know, prevented through the use of two-factor authentication. Um, very, very simple step, you know, obviously creates a little bit of friction, but not too much in today's environment to get access to those accounts. It provides an incredible, you know, amount of protection. So I would look at those and, and think through, you know, which ones do you want to adopt personally, and then which ones do you also want to get the executives to adopt as well? Uh, I, I like that. I mean, it's a, it's a reminder that, you know, we all play a role in helping our organizations and, you know, frankly, just our families be more secure. There's the things that we can do ourselves, but also, you know, influence others and that, you know, especially from a counter Intel perspective, you know, switching uh, a little bit over to artificial intelligence for, for a second, Matt, you know, in, in our, in our members world, they are frankly spending a lot of money on technology. And, and, a, you know, one of the primary reasons for that is they, uh, we, with data explosion, the CI professional could spend all their time doing nothing but collecting, 
um, data. Sure. And, and that's nothing against you know data collection, but there are really other things they need to be doing. And so they're using more and more third-party, generally uh, SaaS tools out there to assist with collection, analysis, and, and dissemination. Um, you know, as CI and other functions start, you know, buying more SaaS tools that pull data from, you know, in some cases hundreds of, of locations, are there risks we're not thinking about? Um, you know, anything from just data dependencies to, um, you know, we we you know putting bad data in to train our algorithms. But you know, what uh, what are some of the downsides or or you know maybe benefits of having that uh, that type of software environment? Yeah, that's a uh, it's a complex question. We could probably spend a whole podcast talking about <laughs> that, but I'll share some high level <laughs> thoughts for you. Yeah, um, the one is, you know, if if the if this data is going to be used to support decision making, you need to understand maybe the the bias that's inherent in the data based on how it was collected or the sources you collected from. Uh, so that's one aspect when we talk about. Uh, training data where you've got, you know, some inherent bias. I always like to say that that bias or mistakes like that as it relates to machine learning uh, in particular, you know, AI is a great buzzword, but we're kind of not really there yet. But machine learning can provide incredible value in these organizations, but it's like uh, money in a bank account where you have compounding interest, you can have compounding impact of the mistakes. And a lot of these machine learning environments are somewhat autonomous uh, in that they deal with so much data and make decisions at such a capacity that the humans can't decode them. So you really are at risk of being downstream and A, having to revert your algorithms back to day one and losing two years worth of progress or you know making decisions based on data that has gotten, you know, incrementally more rotten over time. So that's one area. Um, the, the second is you have to think uh, in particular about uh, adversarial impact to data if it's being used in decision-making where an adversary might kind of pollute the data stream intentionally to try and drive a decision in a particular direction. Uh, so that's another area. Uh, and then we need to think about just uh, kind of adversarial machine learning in of itself. And we've seen where, uh, you can uh, develop machine learning capabilities that basically kind of learn in parallel uh, with your system whose intent is to be somewhat adversarial to prevent access to data or pollute data or, you know, kind of drive you towards making decisions that are contrary to your best interest. Uh, and again, here we're talking about, you know, potentially the use of, of automated decision making through machine learning. So being aware of that in the technology doesn't just get used for positive benefit, you know, the same machine learning techniques that you might use to drive benefit in your business, somebody might be trying to apply against you uh, to drive you in a particular direction. So it's a large, complex topic. It's something I've spent a lot of time on uh, over the past several years, because what I've seen is this kind of this natural progression. You know, when we think about the internet, uh, Steve Lukasik, who was the director of DARPA uh, when the internet was created, was a friend. And, you know, one night uh, over beers, he said, geez, Matt, you know, had we known that this was going to be the backbone of global commerce and communications and society, we would have thought about security, you know, yeah, yeah. but it wasn't. We were trying to create a resilient network, right? It was it was meant to be, a, you know, kind of a, a node agnostic way to route around around damage in a network and maintain communications. I saw the same thing 
when uh, the emergence of, of IOT and industrial IOT, yeah. where we had all this great benefit and people rushed to bring it to market and now saying the same thing, oh man, we should have thought about security. Uh, before we hooked that refinery up to be completely controlled by computers, we should have maybe had a security model for the build of those devices. Now I look at it and say, uh, you know, every company uh, over the next 10 years is going to be impacted by machine learning or some early phases of artificial intelligence in a way that can be uh, a, a big impact, you know, beneficially to their organization. Maybe you should be thinking about the security model, right? Maybe this is one of those where we slap ourselves in the forehead and say, oh man, I should have thought about that. Now is the time before you build the dependency, um, before, you know, as you're making these investments, let's think about the integrity of these systems. They can derive great benefit. You know, one aspect of my, the, History that we skipped over is actually built a, you know, a special purpose investment holding company where we brought machine learning to kind of boring entities to help with their growth trajectory. And I saw firsthand put 15 brilliant data scientists in the room, you know, with any type of company and you can greatly impact that business. Let's also think about the security uh, measures of that as well. Yeah, that's Fascinating and a little bit scary, so I'm, I'm going to probe a little bit on that. Now, sure. hit, hit this malevolent ML, there's probably a, a cooler catchphrase than that. So if, if you have <laughs> one, I'm all ears. But is, is this something you've primarily seen um, on a national security level, or, or, or is this actually occurred in the corporate environment? Yeah, you're seeing it. Um, you know, it's primarily the research is being driven at uh, a nation state level, right? I mean, these are national programs, but this, you know, a lot of the emergence of, of great machine learning capability uh, has come out of academia, uh, right? So you see that as well. And we see this as well with kind of the adversarial machine learning where um, a, a good exemplar, you know, there's been a few stories recently about how it's impossible to solve CAPTCHAs because there have been uh, adversarial you know, uh, entities that have basically incorrectly solved them. So that the, the training data that I was using you know, for my CAPTCHA machine learning capability to understand what is a crosswalk was polluted, you know, where they didn't understand uh, what a crosswalk was anymore. Uh, or we see that where people try and uh, take advantage of algorithms around autonomous vehicles driving uh, to impact them, you know, by either inputting symbology or you know, changing the profile of a stop sign or something that they might recognize. Uh, so you, you see that happening kind of across the spectrum and a lot of interesting stuff. Um, I put out a, a newsletter for free uh, every Sunday called the Global Frequency, and I try and track developments in that space. Uh, of adversarial machine learning. There's, you know, at least once a month, a really fascinating paper uh, that is originating out of a, a research entity at a corporation or within academia that demonstrates some of the cautions that we should have uh, in developing the, these dependencies on data and machine learning. Uh, and another one, you know, thing I would recommend uh, there's a great uh, book that I just read by an author called uh, Jared Thorpe called Living in Data. Uh, he's a great data scientist that I like the, you know, the analogy is he's kind of like the Indiana Jones of data science. Uh, not only has That's he good. worked <laughs> and not only has he worked on kind of these big data science uh, issues or machine learning issues, but he's 
traveled around the world to look at uh, issues of data adjacencies, missing data, our relationship and data we can collect, you know, from the environment that helps us better understand uh, humans' relationship with the environment and how it is changing uh, in these ecosystems. Uh, fascinating book, but also gives you uh, what is a very accessible narrative around understanding these issues as well. Yeah, and I love that. And it's it's a good reminder that that there is warranted enthusiasm around digital transformation and all the things that that powers it, you know, including ML as we've been talking about here. But but like with any trend, um, there there is a downside, and um, and there are aspects of that trend that people will seek to exploit. And so it, yeah. it's a very well made point, Matt, that we need to take a balanced approach towards this because people are people, and whether you know we have adversarial M- ML today in your face or whether it's 10 years from now, I, th- I think your point's well made that, that it will come. Um, and it's that aspect of, you know, you can't manage to a risk if you don't acknowledge its existence. So uh, <laughs> a- acknowledging the existence of the risk now allows us to build with the benefit of these programs while appropriately managing the risk. I think too often with technology deployments like this, all that we can see are the benefits. We can see the impact on our revenues or our customer retention or access to new markets or whatever it may be that we're hoping to magically enable through data science, but not thinking through the risks. So then downstream, when we've built that dependencies or we have a critical issue based on you know the, the um, pollution of the data that we used in that environment, then we're kind of slapping ourselves and, and you're paying a lot more downstream with regards to impact of the business or just even the, the cost to mitigate the risks that you've introduced than you would have if you had acknowledged those risks and planned you know mitigation strategies in parallel as you're moving forward to reap the benefits of machine learning. Yeah. And, and it's a eye-opening way to look at the challenge, right? Because if, if, you know, if you looked at the concept of security 50, you know, from a corporate perspective, 50, 75 years ago, you know, a lot of it was largely physical security. Um, and, and, you know, as we started our conversation talking about, you know, cybersecurity, you know, uh, stealing IP, um, you know, we didn't talk about viruses, but, you know, or, you know, malware, the, you know, those are obviously sure. a concern. Um, but, you know, where our conversation now really is, Matt, it's talking about um, far more subtle ways to, to cause problems, you know, injecting bad data, adversarial machine learning. I mean, these are much more nuanced and sophisticated ways for, for bad actors to, uh, to disrupt organizations and nation states. Um, it's... Yeah. Scary. It's a little scary, but I guess you get that a lot. Yep. Now, you know, last thing I'd love to get your perspective on is where all this goes. And so one of the things that that CI professionals are keenly interested in is, um, you know, some might call it uh, foresight, megatrends, but, you know, looking out several years, um, you know, where do you see emerging uh, in, d- in the disruptive technology landscape going over the next few years? Do you see, you know, ML just accelerating and proliferating? What are some of the trends and issues that you think uh, our listeners should watch out for? Yeah, I think definitely the acceleration of machine learning is going to be huge uh, by all means, right? And then the autonomy and automation that that introduces into traditional environments, right? We've seen it in factory floors uh, for a long time now. Uh, That's only going to advance. We're going to see it in self-driving cars. You know, we're seeing rockets that are able to land themselves now, which was unconceivable years ago. So um, just kind of that 
there are all these parallel advancements that will be made possible based on you know advanced computational power and ability to uh, to analyze and, and act on these huge data sources. Um, so the AI machine learning absolutely you know a key area. Uh, another one that we pay close attention to at UDA is developments uh, in quantum computing technology and the impact that that will have and. It really is kind of understanding the landscape, but if you are an entity, you know, particularly a government or a company that relies on protection of critical IP, through the use of encryption, you need to start thinking through, you know, what is the lifespan that you want that protection to be enabled for? And how does that map up with developments in uh, quantum computing and the potential for quantum computing to crack encryption? Um, you know, there, you might be using an algorithm now where you are hoping you're going to get 30 years of protection based on, you know, current computational assumptions in the introduction of quantum computing could reduce that to a five-year window. And is a five-year window protection of those secrets adequate? Uh, or do you need to develop more robust kind of quantum resistant capabilities? So I think that's definitely an area uh, <clears throat> that is of, of keen interest. Uh, there, there's two more that I would mention. You know, this is also another topic that, that I'm fascinated by and I'd spend a lot of time, but two, two that I think that would be great to mention. It's also uh, developments with regards to uh, gene editing and understanding DNA and CRISPR and all kind of that sort of stuff. And I won't pretend to be an expert there, but I've read enough and been briefed by enough people to understand that those are uh, game changers, you know, with regards to... Um, medical uh, and just kind of our existence as a human species and understanding, you know, the potential impact there. And then the, th the fourth one that is a little bit more, uh, it's going to sound a little bit more grounded in earth, but maybe a little bit more out there in whether I'm predicting it accurately or not, is I do feel like we're going to migrate within these systems away from large third-party aggregation stores of data about us individually. Uh, if you just think about how we operate today, all of your network traffic, you know, what you're buying off Amazon, the, you know, transactions that you're engaging with, with your credit card, I mean, kind of all of that data gets collected and aggregated and it gets used to, to market stuff to you. And you could determine that that marketing provides some value. I certainly derive value from Amazon's book recommendations, you know, as I'm an avid reader, always looking for the next thing but we don't derive much other benefit from it. Uh, so one trend that I definitely see emerging is this concept of digital self-sovereignty, where the individuals start to take more control of that data and start to dictate the relationship and how it's used with these third parties. And I think we're just starting to see the emergence as a pushback on that collection of data. Uh, if you just look at Apple's announcements with iOS 15 uh, and the, you know, basically embedding a, a Tor network private browsing capability to help prevent this aggregation of data. Uh, if you look at developments in blockchain, uh, you know, and uh, digital identity and, you know, immutable transactions and things of that sort, uh, I could envision a, a scenario and I hope that I'm right, where we start to control more of that data, but then we start to become empowered to engage in ML for our own benefit. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe the ML notices that uh, I've stopped at 7-Eleven and bought Pepto-Bismol four times over the past two years. And every four times that I did it, it was because I ate this particular type of food and maybe there's an allergy, right? I mean, th things like that where 
we don't get the benefit of our own data that could be used to improve our lives and also has monetary value, right? Where we can determine the value proposition for what we allow others to know about us. Uh, so I certainly feel like that's a trend that's going to be interesting and, and worth watching at a, at a big macro level. And Matt, you, you call that, was it uh, data sovereignty? Yeah, the kind of digital yeah. self-sovereignty. Digital sovereignty. Um, yeah. yeah, where you start to become in more control of your data. Right. So you would ha almost have kind of your personal data repository uh, and maybe on a transaction basis, you know, you define the rule sets. And it might be that some people just say, I want all of the data about me accessible and it gets me a $10 or 10% discount at, at the ice cream store or, you know, at the bookstore or whatever it might be. Or others might develop a better protection profile around that and say, well, I'm okay with Amazon knowing what books I read, um, but I'm not okay with them knowing that, you know, I'm buying diapers um, because my wife's pregnant, you know, things of that sort. I mean, you can think of all sorts of different scenarios, but more importantly, that we start to be enabled with mining and using that data for our own benefit. Cause there's, you know, I wrote about this a decade ago. I wrote a quick, quick essay that said, uh, I am, uh, you are big data. And so am I, uh, hmm where we are big data right now. I mean, we're generating a, a ton of data just even as we sit here <laughs> and, uh, and exist on this Zoom line, um, but we don't get to derive any of the benefit of that data. Uh, and I think the world is gonna change in a way and such that we'll start to be able to derive benefit from the data that we're generating on ourselves. Well, I think it's a great place to end because it really, you know, from my perspective, Matt, it, it kind of is a good reminder and a wake-up call that we need to be proactive about our digital footprints, um, about how we create, share, store uh, data, both as individuals and also as you know, members of organizations. That uh, we, we can't be passive and just assume someone else is taking care of it. Um, Matt, that was a great conversation. Really appreciate you talking with me today. Absolutely, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, definitely. Folks, Matt DeVoe from UDA, um, we will drop a link to a couple of things he mentioned, uh, including their newsletter and website in the show notes and appreciate everyone listening. Bye-bye.